We're going to be reading uh, from Romans 8 tonight. We're going to read the whole thing, so starting at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. 
Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Evening everybody. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Phil. I'm one of the ministers on the staff here and it's my privilege to to take us through this wonderful passage tonight. Let's pray for God's help and then we'll get down to work. Father God, we praise you for the truths of this passage. And our Father, we pray that not only would you give us minds to understand, but would you help us to drive them deep into our hearts that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ and we would trust in his love with the confidence of those who believe that you do not lie. Amen. Picture a line of soldiers uh, crouched in a trench, uh, the ground shuddering with the artillery fire, crackling machine gun fire overhead, waiting for the whistle to go over the top, wondering, am I going to be brave? Will I survive? (laughs) Will I make it? Or a first-time marathon runner, she gets to 18 miles, legs start to cramp up badly, thinking... I'm not sure I've got another eight miles in these legs. Am I really going to make it? Or an alcoholic man, he's been dry for about a year, but he's away on his own on a business trip. And as he walks past the hotel bar that first night, he feels that cold tug of addictive desire and he fears how weak his willpower is. And he wonders, will I make it? That's where we are in Romans 8. Will I, not as a soldier, an athlete, or an addict, but will I as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, will I make it? We hear the Bible telling us that when Jesus returns, there will be an eternity of unimaginable excitement and joy and pleasure and purpose. But we wonder, will I still be there when Jesus returns? Will I still manage to hang on? All the disappointments, the temptations, the tragedies, the trials of life. And we wonder, will I really be able to hang on that long? Will I still be trusting in Jesus when this great future actually appears? See, the fear is that we'll be ground down or tempted away. And eventually, eventually we'll just stop following Jesus. That's the Christian's fear. And any Christian who tells you that they don't share that fear is a liar. 
And I promise that's true. Uh, And God says to us, extraordinarily, God says to us in Romans 8, not only you will make it, but I guarantee absolutely 100%, there is no doubt whatsoever that you will make it. No ifs, no buts, no questions. You trust in Jesus now, you will make it to glory. That is the promise of God in Romans 8. In other words, if you trust in Jesus and you die tonight, then I don't care how bad a day or a week or a month you've had as a Christian. You can have committed the most appalling sins that you cannot believe you've fallen back into. You can feel further from God than you've ever felt since you started to follow Jesus. But if you're trusting Jesus and you die tonight, you will be with him for eternity and glory. Or if you live for another 80 years... Frankly, unlikely for somebody my age, but uh, for some of you, (laughs) 80 years, you know, that's pretty standard life. Uh, You live for another 80 years. If you trust in Jesus tonight, then I guarantee you, God says, you will still be trusting in him then. See, assurance is the theme of Romans 8. And assurance is not uh, something for a special level of advanced Christians. If you have kind of ordinary cattle class Christians with our doubts and our worries and our troubles and then you have super Christians who have assurance that God is for me and I will stand firm with the Lord Jesus. No the truth is that as we'll see in Romans 8 if you get Christianity 1.0 basic bog standard ordinary Christianity if you get that then you'll know that you will be with God forever no doubts. Now, to some of us, I reckon that sounds just immensely arrogant. I mean, I know Christians think that they have the truth, but you're now telling me you know that you're definitely going to be able to stand firm for the whole of your future. That is so arrogant. For others of us, it's less that it sounds arrogant. It's just it feels a long way away from our experience of faltering, doubting, falling away, backsliding. And so Paul addresses in this uh, end of the chapter a number of questions to show us why it is not arrogant to say, if you trust in Jesus, you'll definitely make it to glory, and why it's not stupid to be convinced that that will happen too. And my prayer is that as we work at this, we'll understand that. And it's really, really important that we do. Because if you follow Jesus, uh, the truth is that the vast majority of the problems we face as Christians, of the the vast majority of the reasons behind why we fail to follow Jesus, why we fail to honour him, why we fail to live out his example is because we are not convinced of these truths. We're not convinced at a heart level that God really will keep me. Romans 8, uh, as we've already heard, really is the highest peak of all scripture. Every great Bible scholar has, rec- has recognized that if the, if the Bible is a, is a terrain, Romans is a great mountain range, and Everest is Romans 8. And we're on the final pitch of the climb now. And in a short while, we will be standing on the highest peak that Scripture allows us until Jesus returns. So we're going to work hard and enjoy the view. And the last section, actually, it begins with a question. If you turn up um, page, I think it's 1135 in your Bible, so if you turn, turn that up, and verse 31, we're just going from 31 to 39. The last section begins with a question. What then shall we say in response to this? 
Now, in one sense, uh, Paul is sitting back at his desk and stretching and thinking back, looking over the scrolls of parchment of everything from chapter 5, really, all the way to the end of where he's got to in chapter 8. But more specifically, he's looking back at what we saw last week in verses 28 to 30. In other words, his, uh, his golden chain that everyone who God calls, God justifies, and everyone who he justifies, everyone who he forgives through Jesus, will be glorified, certain, definite, this golden chain. And he's looking back at that. And he just thinks, I think I probably need to address some questions because I imagine there'll be a lot of, uh, hang on, what ifs? And so we're going to look through his questions. Uh, You've got them uh, written down there, really boiled it down. There are more questions than that, but it boils down really to three questions. And the first is, if God is for us, who can stop us? And it's as if um, someone says to Paul, look, okay, that's all great what you've written, but (laughs) this is a long journey all the way to heaven. And whenever life gets hard, the truth is I get filled with doubts. I constantly need forgiving, not from new sins, but from the same old stupid sins that I've been playing with for years. I'm often backsliding, falling apart. If it, in economic terms, Paul, I'm a very poor return on God's investment. That's the truth. Frankly, I'm hugely high maintenance for him as a Christian, and I doubt, I just doubt that he'll keep me going. You know, it's one thing for him to to keep supplying all the help and forgiveness I need for a few weeks, months, maybe even years. But after decades, I just think God's going to say, enough, enough. I never budgeted that you would require that much. That's it. I'm getting a much better deal out of some of the others. You're on your own. And Paul responds this way, verse 31. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's making two points. His first is this. Look who is on your side. Look who is on your side. As you face the future and you worry whether you'll have the strength to make it, he says, you're forgetting who's with you. God is with you. See, his point here is basically the Bible would make a rubbish superhero movie. That's what Paul would have written, um, had he known. (laughs) Uh, I'm a man of very simple tastes when it comes to movies, uh, and so superhero movies, love it. Uh, Basically, if there's not an explosion within every five minutes, I've lost interest in the movie. Sophisticated is not a word that's ever been used for my cinematic taste. But the thing that makes uh, superhero movies watchable, and they are watchable, is, uh, is that as great as the superhero is in whatever the movie, Spider-Man, Superman, the Avengers, whatever, they always end up facing somebody who is more powerful. And it looks like the superhero is going to lose until suddenly, somehow, they, they dig deep and believe themselves in a Disney-esque way. And they snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But that's always the way it works. It, what's, what makes it watchable is that there's a good chance in the world of the movie that they'll lose. They never do. The clue's usually in the title of the movie. You know, it's a Spider-Man movie. He's going to win. But you're made to believe that they might lose. It's not like that with God. I mean, what weakness does God have that an opponent could pray on? There is no kryptonite for God that makes him go all weak. He's God. Or what other being might, uh, might rise up to, to oppose God? There are lots of mighty beings in this universe. There is only one almighty being. That's God. 
Everything else is just a creature made by him. Rubbish superhero movie. Brilliant if it's your salvation and you're relying on God. It's not a very exciting, ooh, maybe it'll go one way or the other. But when your life is in the balance, it is wonderfully assuring. God has a firm grip and God is more powerful than any who might oppose him. That's his first point. Uh, His second point is look at what God has already given you. Let's look again at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Now he needs to make this point because to be honest, most of us, for most of us um, who would call ourselves Christians, if we're convinced by what the Bible says, we find it easy to believe that God is almighty and massive. What I find it much harder to believe is that God is for me, that God cares about me and that God is using this mighty power for my good. And so Paul says, look what God gave for us. What was God willing to pay to save us? I told a couple of people at the, uh, the prayer meeting last week, there's a, the most expensive diamond ever sold at auction. It's about 120 carat, uh, perfectly flawless, pink diamond. Uh, costs 60 million quid, so don't even think about it. 60 million quid, 120 carats. Astronomers have found a planet called E Cancri 55. Sorry, 55 Cancri E. That is, important to get these things right, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> 55 Cancri E is a solid diamond. It is three times the size of Earth. We have a number of people from Imperial, so I'll give you the statistics. That's 18 times 10 to the 29 carats. See, there were genuinely a few people go, wow, I know what that means. (laughs) I'll give you one word, bling. I mean, this is, (laughs) seriously, this is unbelievable. When God was paying for our redemption, what did he give? He didn't give some pathetic little diamond planet. No, he gave something far, far more valuable. We're told in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish chosen before the creation of the world. God gave his son, his perfect son, his only son, for you and for me. Think about that for a minute. Just work it through. That means God looked down and saw Adam in paradise, in the garden, with a perfect relationship with God and a world to enjoy. And he saw Adam rebel against him and bring death and sin and evil into this world And God said, I will not spare my perfect obedient son so that I can spare you and pay for your forgiveness, Adam. God looked down and saw King David. Everything in Israel was his as king. But he saw him lust after another man's wife, commit adultery and then murder the woman's husband to cover up his filthy deed. And God said, I will not spare my perfect, faithful son so that I can spare you, David. And God looked down at Peter. The guy, he enabled Peter to walk on water. And God looked down and saw Peter at Jesus' hour of need. 
just as Jesus is about to die on a cross for Peter's sins. And God sees Peter just abandon Jesus like a coward. And God says, I will not spare my perfect, courageous son so that I can spare you, Peter. And God looked down at you and at me. And God said, I know that even after I've forgiven you, even then you will cherish sins in private and be ashamed of the name of Jesus in public. I know that you'll backslide, that you'll often bring dishonor to Jesus. But I will not spare my perfect sinless son so that I can spare you and you and you. And that is what God says to each of us. That is the love that God lavishes on each of us. This is not a God who's, who holds goodness in his fingers and we have to prize them open to get stuff out. This is a God who lavishly, generously gives to those who deserve nothing. That is the God with whom we're dealing. And so if he gave his son willingly, lovingly, freely for you, what makes you think for just a moment that he'll withhold from you the gifts, the life circumstances, the encouragements and the discipline that you need if you're to make it safely all the way every day to glory? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares who's against us if this God is for us? That's what his point is. Secondly, if God justifies us, who can condemn us? This time the, the, the question changed. Look, Paul, it's not just that I doubt often that God is committed to me, as well as doubting that I know for a fact that I'm a sinful idiot, Paul. And I just worry. I mean, can you imagine, uh, picture in your mind the heavenly courtroom on Judgment Day. This colossal arena stretching further than the eye can see. An enormous, silent crowd of every single human being who ever drew breath on the face of this earth. And there in the middle of the arena, in blazing glorious light, surrounded by mighty angels, is the the colossal throne on which is seated God himself, the one true God, the creator, the judge of the universe. And he is sat there in glory and it is your turn. And you walk forward and you stand before his throne. How confident do you feel? How confident do you feel before the blazing glory of the judge of the universe? Verse 33. So Paul asks, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, there are two questions here, but they're really dealing with the same issue, which is, can I be sure that if I trust in Jesus, I will be forgiven, will be declared right by God on that final judgment day? And the point of verse 33 is so simple and yet so profound. It's it's basically this. When you put your trust in Jesus, you were justified, it says, Justified by whom? By God. Justified, just as if I'd lived Jesus' perfect life. That's what it means. You were declared by God, justified, just as if you'd lived Jesus' perfect life. 
Now, the problem with a verdict from an earthly judge, any of the lawyers in the room will know, is there's always some higher court you can appeal to, which is wonderful if you're working in litigation because there's always more money to be made from the case. Stop smiling, I can see that. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, milk them, milk them. The, uh, who are you going to appeal to when God, in a voice that, that rings out for all eternity, has said, righteous? Who are you going to say, well, I'm appealing? Who's Satan going to bring the appeal before? What higher judge is there than God? There is none. When God has delivered the verdict on your life as justified, then no one can overturn it. If you trust in Jesus tonight, you can be confident as you face judgment. Similar point, different angle, verse 34. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God is our judge and Jesus is described as our advocate, if you like, our lawyer, interceding for, speaking on our behalf. Now the point is not that, um, look, even if we're found guilty, even if all the, the evidence has us guilty, Jesus is just a brilliant lawyer and he'll find some angle and he'll get us off on a technicality. That is not the point. Uh, He's referring actually back to an earlier part of Romans. In Romans 4.25, he said, He, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Or if you like, the answer um, to what he's saying lies in the answer to a very odd question, which is why does Jesus, in his resurrection body, still have the scars from his crucifixion? Remember at the end of John's Gospel, when doubting Thomas, poor guy, known like that for all eternity, stands before Jesus, he, he's, Jesus says, you can put your fingers through the scars in my hands. So he's got these scars still. Why? Jesus has a new body that will never die, never grow old. He has no wrinkles, no receding hairline. So why on earth would he keep the ugly crucifixion scars? It seems odd if you've got a perfect new body that you would keep one set of scars. He keeps those scars because they are the proof of your and my forgiveness. You see, Jesus has stood at the right hand of the Father. And if anyone comes before God and says, I have seen what he's done, you cannot declare him innocent. I know what he's done and he must pay. There is Jesus and there are the scars. Which means for all, All eternity, standing at the right hand of God the Father is the proof your sins have been punished. See, if Satan were to scour every corner of the universe, if he were to interview everybody you'd ever lived with, everybody you'd dated, everybody you're related to, if he produced video footage of everything you've looked at and done in secret, every thought you'd ever had was transcribed and laid before God. Jesus would point at every single one of them and say, I paid for that with my blood and here are the scars to prove it. Jesus keeps the scars on his resurrection body because they declare for all eternity, paid in full. Who can condemn when Christ Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, interceding for you and for me with his scars? Finally then, if God's love holds us, who can tear us away? Okay, Paul, so I can rely on God, but can he rely on me? (laughs) That's a 
slightly more tricky question, Paul. You know, life can be hard. Uh, It can be very, very hard indeed, actually. And following Jesus often brings us persecution, extra difficulties. How can I be sure that eventually I won't just get so ground down that I give up? How can I be sure, Paul? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I doubt any of us will experience all those things in life. But the truth is life can be extremely hard. And when life gets hard, there is always the fear that we will just give up. We, we doubt when we're struggling and suffering that we can keep going. And sometimes we doubt whether we want to keep going. Do I really want to keep following God if this is what life looks like for his people? Paul's answer, verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How on earth can you say that, Paul? That is ridiculous. People are being, very soon, in, in the town where Paul is writing to, some of these Roman Christians that he's writing to, would be taken and stuck on poles, wrapped in straw, covered in oil, and set alight for Nero's garden parties. How can Paul then say you are more than conquerors to people when that is going to happen to some of them in just a few years' time? Because Paul knows that whether they make it or not is not down to how strongly they can hold on, but how strongly God is holding them. I used to uh, teach rock climbing a bit in the summers. And uh, one of the, the things that the kids found hardest was not the climbing up, it was the coming down. Because some of the climbs, they couldn't climb out at the top. So they'd get to the top, touch the, uh, the carabiner at the top. And then they had to, to lean back and trust the rope on the way down. And you'd tell them to adopt the position. Uh, the easy way to describe it is the position you adopt if you're in a public um, toilet cubicle and there's no lock on the door. So sort of sitting down with your feet braced up against the door. <laughs> And you tell them, adopt that position and hold on to the rope. And some of them would be gripping the rope for like sheer, I mean, they would physically damage the rope pretty much with their fingers as they're, as they're sort of lowered down. And others of them would be really relaxed. You know what? It made no difference how tightly they gripped the rope or how much they trusted it. They were held by a very strong knot and an extremely strong rope. The level of their trust didn't matter. It was the rope that was holding them. And that's why Paul is so confident because he knows it is not down to my strength. It is down to God's strength. It is not my grip that determines my destiny. It is God's grip that determines your destiny. And that's why the passage ends in verses 38 to 39, not with an encouragement, hold on, but with a celebration that God is holding you fast. Look with me at these wonderful verses. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life, 
Neither death that cuts us off from every human relationship and from life itself. It cannot cut us off from God. He conquered the grave in the resurrection of Jesus. Nor can life, long life, even if you live another 50, 60, 70 years, even if you get Alzheimer's and can no longer remember or, or understand the gospel, God can keep you through death and through life. And God doesn't get tired or bored or forgetful or change his mind. God will keep you. Neither angels nor demons. There is no spiritual power out there that could wrestle you out of the hands of God. As I've said, there are many mighty spiritual forces in our world. There is only one almighty. And he has you. And he has you tightly. And he will not let go. Neither height nor depth. See, neither Mars probes nor deep sea submarines will find anything in the heights of space or the depths of the oceans that could possibly undo the truth of this. Neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers. See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change, and he knows the future. He writes the future. His Bible is full of promises, and every one has come true. So we can trust him with our today and our tomorrows. Nor anything else in all creation. Everything that exists, you see, is either creation or God. And God is with us and nothing in creation, we're told here, can take us away. That means we are secure. But this is really important. It doesn't just say nothing can separate us from the grip of God. It says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just the love of God either. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus In other words, we are loved with the unbreakable bond of love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. The only way that you or I could be thrown out from heaven, the only way that our future could be in doubt is if somebody could rip the Son away from the Father. If someone could stop God the Father loving God the Son, then, well, our future would be in doubt. But that is never going to happen. That cannot happen. Our security is in the certainty that for all eternity, God the Father loves and delights in God the Son. And we are adopted into the Son. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean for us? Assurance is the right of everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for every doubt, the answer is not in me, but in God. It's not in the strength of my faith, the obedience of my life. It is in his generosity to give me what I need. It is in his finished work in forgiving me in Jesus' death. And it is in his unbreakable loving hold on me. So you see, assurance is not arrogant because when a Christian says, I know that God will bring me safely home to heaven, the Christian is not saying, I am good enough, I am strong enough, I am clever enough. They're saying, God is good, God is strong, God is wise. There is no arrogance in assurance because none of it is grounded in me. It's not stupid either because it's grounded in the promises of God's word and God has never failed. Every one of his promises has come true. So what should you do when you doubt? The great Scottish minister, Robert Murray McChain, wisely said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. 
So it is good and healthy sometimes to look at my faith, to think it through. But for every one look I look at myself and, and analyze my beliefs, take 10 looks at Christ. Don't spend too long on the inside weighing up, am I growing, am I changing, do I really believe this stuff? Look to Christ. See the generosity of God, his commitment to you in giving his son to die on the cross. Look to Christ. See in his, in his scars, in his death, your forgiveness, your sins totally paid. Look to Christ. See the love that God has for him and know that you are in Christ if you trust in him. And therefore you are in the love of God. We've reached the end of Romans 8. We're standing, if you like, on the top of the highest peak in all scripture. And soon, we'll all have to go back down into the valleys of our daily lives. And it can be gloomy and grim and tedious down there. <laughs> Sorry to depress you about Monday morning. But some of you commute on the Northern Line, and you know what I mean. <laughs> Actually, let's not be trite. Uh, some of you go to really difficult lives tonight. Uh, some of you, uh, you come here as a break from some really serious, heavy things that you're dealing with. Some awful things that are beyond your ability to carry or work out what to do. You see, the things we've learnt from up here, the things we can see from the top of Romans 8, they remain true. They remain true even when we feel depressed and weary. They remain true even when I don't feel like they're true. They remain true even when I can't see with my eyes any evidence of God's love for me and his commitment to me. They remain true because they're grounded in unshakable facts of what God has done in history, in Christ. I remember a friend telling me um, that she had a relative who um, developed a degenerative eye disease and they were going blind quite fast. Their favourite place in the world was the Grand Canyon. They'd been there loads of times and just before their eyes really went, they flew for one last visit. And they basically went and locked into their mind the sights they loved so that even when their physical eyes could no longer see, their mind's eye would always be able to see those gloriously wonderful vistas. And what we need to do is lock Romans 8 into our minds. Lock its truths into our hearts so that we don't forget the promises of God when we find it hard to see them. Uh, Scottish independence is uh, on the rise once more. So I'll close with uh, the story of another Scotsman, Robert the Bruce. He appears at the end of, uh, of Braveheart in various bits of it. He's the 14th century Scottish king who beat the hated English at Bannockburn. There's a few smiles. What's less well known is that he was a committed Christian man. And right at the end, the account of his death is, is absolutely striking. Knowing the end was near... His last breakfast, he got his daughter to bring up his last breakfast to him. And he, he said to her, cast me upon the eighth of Romans. And she opened the Bible and began to read. His eyes could no longer work, but he knew the words off by heart. And so he recited along with her as she read. And when she'd got through verses 38 and 39 at the end, he told his daughter, set my finger upon these words. I die believing these words. And he lives for all eternity because those words are true. See, life is a battle for many of us. But we don't go out into Monday morning holding grimly on, waiting for Jesus' return. If you trust in Jesus, you go out as more than conquerors. 
Because the God who is with us and holding us as we go out into Monday is the God who gave his son for you at the cross. The God who goes out with you on Monday is the God who has already declared you justified. Your approval is secure. You have nothing to prove to God this week. And the God who goes out with you this Monday is the God who has poured out his spirit on you, breathing new life and hope and power into you. And so whatever you are facing, and I really mean whatever, if you trust in Jesus, you can say with absolute certainty what Paul says here. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me, us, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.